Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Karen Newton all the way coming from Spain. So Karen, good morning. Good morning, Pete. Good to be back. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, listen, thanks for coming I on. I'm, I'm a bit nervous looking forward to this, I should say. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine you're too nervous now. So, Karen, give us a bit of a background. Who are you? What do you do? And where are you from? Right, so I'm um, British-born. Uh, went to school in France as a teenager. Married a New Zealander. Lived in New Zealand for a while. Uh, lived in Australia. Back to the UK. And now I live in Spain. So a little bit of a nomad, as I call myself. Um, I have always worked in finance. I started in Inland Revenue uh, straight from school. I then went into banking, and now I'm a coach. You um, must you must have a very um, very active passport, lots of stamps. Or do they maybe don't even do stamps anymore, do they? Very rare. Um, I've got um, nationality, seven I've got a couple of passports. So um, what I find is I use a passport when I travel certain countries. I use a passport for others. And nobody seems to stamp them. I'm so disappointed. I've got a 30-page passport in each of them, and there's no stamps. <laughs> yeah. yeah so when someone says, where are you from, do you, do you ever struggle to actually answer that question? Um, well, yeah, it's um, hard. I just, if somebody says, something to me i usually say i'm a nomad yeah i just uh, i love different countries i love cultures and um i find it just really fantastic having been able to live in a lot of different cultures yeah, I'm, like i said i was well i was born in london so i was brought up um english my dad was english my mum was welsh and then when I was about five, we moved to Wales. So I've had the, the London culture, um, the Welsh culture. Then um, I was lucky to go to school in France. I went to um, La Rochelle and I spent quite a lot of uh, time in Paris. So I've learned quite a bit about French culture. Met my husband who's a New Zealander, lived there for 18 years, moved to Australia. And the thing is that every country is different. It's it's almost like you're constantly learning. Um, I absolutely love it because the difference between the people is just, you know, the different attitudes between people. Um, just incredible learning and the history that goes. I, I love history and the history that goes with uh, the people's backgrounds and why they're the cultures that they are. It's just, um, yeah. Uh, history is really important to me because uh, I'm a strong believer history repeats. And the more you know of history, the more you understand, especially in a finance market 
what is likely to happen uh, because you you see the patterns of things happening so for me um history is really really important it's amazing to see that you know whether it's well, I suppose now in financial history, whether it's political history, you know, cultural history, that all, as you say, it sort of keeps going. And you've had a lovely exposure to different cultures and things through that. I mean, what's been your takeaway from sort of seeing all these different places? Just the differences, the way people think about things. Um, You know, we're here in Spain. People are so laid back. If they say, you see you tomorrow... Tomorrow could be tomorrow or the day after or the day after that. Um, very laid back the way they do things in Spain. Uh, when we were in New Zealand, um, it, the joke is that if you had number eight wire and duct tape, you could fix and repair absolutely anything because that was the, the Kiwi attitude to things. You know, so, yeah, just the way things operate in different countries is very much around the culture of that country. And I think uh, as an investor, that helps me understand if I'm looking at investments in a certain country, by understanding the people and the culture, you understand more about how an investment will actually work. And, you know, I've, London, born in London, uh, I used to go back to London quite a lot, is a very fast paced city and things happen if somebody says something to you it happens i send an email to somebody in london and within five minutes that email is actioned and they're coming back to me and sometimes i'm not ready for them to come back to me but that is the pace they work at whereas i know that if i go to talk to somebody in spain and they don't get back to me for two or three days it's not that they're ignoring me it's that that is the way the culture operates in that country. You know, and I think if you understand more about the culture, then people get preconceived ideas about things. And like I said, you know, if someone in Spain doesn't respond to me for three or four days, if I was in London, I'd be thinking, well, that person doesn't want to do business with me. They're totally ignoring me and all that sort of thing. Whereas I know they're in Spain that's the way they operate. It's just they haven't got around to doing that yet, but they will get around to doing it. And I don't need to pressure them. It's just the way they operate. What, so I, what culture do you resonate most with? I mean, do you, do you like that sort of almost immediate reaction or is it sort of a bit more uh, manana? It depends. Mm. It depends because um, I do a lot on the finance markets, so things are instant. So if I'm, you know, like this morning, I've got an investment group that are in the US. Um, I'm trying to get their funds over to the US at the moment. So I contact the um, company that I deal with. And, you know, I've sent an email and five minutes later, they've got my funds transferred for me. I expect that. That's what I'm expecting because that's the market that I'm working in. But then I know that um, other markets are working. It's a slower pace, and I expect it to be a slower pace. So it, I think you can adapt to the environment. That's the key, is the environment you work in. 
So I don't say I resonate with one. It's just the expectation I have for a different, the different markets that I work within. So give us an insight to your personality then. Are you, are you a patient person? Do you, do, yeah. you Very understand? Very patient. Mm-hmm. Um, as an investor, I have to be really patient because I have to wait for the markets to come to me. I can't force a market. I'm a contrarian investor, which means that I, I invest against the markets and I'm waiting for the markets to then turn and come to me. It's not something I control or force, so I have to be extremely patient. I have to think really long-term. But short-term stuff, then I've got to be able to um, work pretty fast. Um, Like I said, I sent an email today. I sent it to about 1 o'clock this morning, and they've actioned it straight away. As soon as the um, bank opened this morning, they've actioned it for me. Um, If I hadn't heard of them within an hour, then I wouldn't have been very patient. I'd have been chasing them up saying, you know, I expect this to happen. So I, I, I can be very patient. Like I said, it actually comes down to expectation. What am I working in? Yeah. So if I do need to be patient, then I am patient because I look at the long-term um, picture. But if it's something that has to happen now, then I expect it to happen now, and I'm not very patient if it doesn't happen now. But that would be similar to, like, I suppose, a Warren Buffett and that. I mean, they're extremely long-term. You know, that's all compounding. It's all about, you know, long-term views, never mind short-term cycles, just long-term, long-term, long-term. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Um, because, you know, some of my investments I've had 20-odd years. Hmm. Um, some of them are short-term, and they will only run short-term so that I expect to see something happen. When I say short-term, I'm probably looking six six months, okay? Um, but the majority of my investing would be long-term, so I would be taking a three- to five-year or longer position on something and expecting it to happen. But then because I work cycles, I'm contrarian, some of those cycles can be 10 years long or they can be 20 years long or longer. So, yeah, I just have to um, be patient and let that cycle do its thing. Is compounding, was it the eighth wonder of the world or ninth wonder of the world or whatever it's supposed to be? Eighth. eighth. According to Einstein, it's the eighth. Yeah. yeah. Do you agree I'm with that? I'm definitely a strong believer in it. It is fundamental I think as an investor uh, I think too many people want short-term results and they get out before they allow an investment to actually do what it needs to do story of life really isn't it you know one sort of wants a you know or just measuring your short and long-term goals and aims and, and needs and wants so. Sorry, Pete, um, your screen froze a little bit then. I didn't get that question. Yeah, so it was just, uh, no, just in terms of its story of life, I was saying, you know, in terms of, you know, people short-term, you know, needs, wants, and things like that, you know, we're, we're all sort of short and, and medium-term based as opposed to long-term views. So it's just a bit of a... And, uh, I find it frustrating sometimes because I've had some clients come to me and they've got, they tell me they've got a 10-year plan, but they want the results in a month or in a week, and you say, 
no, that doesn't happen. You have to be patient. If this is where you want to be in 10 years, then we put a 10-year plan together. And I, you know, I've had one client that just chops and changes so much, never keeps telling me I understand compounding interest. I understand the compounding effect. And a week later says, well, I don't think this is going to work. So <laughs> I'm changing to something else. Well, that to me, that's what I call lip service. It's not understanding it at all. Mm. God, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Well, people, yeah, say one thing and do another or, yeah, use the, the, sort of the different mechanisms. But mm. tell me, before we get into it, really, what does, what does fire in the belly mean to you? Fire in the belly is what you enjoy doing. It's the, what gets you out of bed in the morning, what keeps you in your heads. I think it's an inner thing that you have. Um, it's your desire what yeah what gets you out of bed in the morning mm. do you have it yeah I think so mm. what, do, what do you enjoy doing then what's your what's your go to in um, I'm a writing like um, I get so many ideas for writing books I guess so many ideas for even writing training courses and things like that. Um, if I am in a bad mood or I need to work through things, I have a I go to my journal. I write. I work everything out on paper. Um, for me, writing is very much the it's the backstop. It's the passion. It's what gets me going. Is it that? Is it the cathartic process of getting that out of your head, or is it the, you know, the almost the, I suppose the feedback when you can teach it to somebody else? I mean, where does it sit for you? Is you know just understanding a principle? I think or, it's both because yeah. um, I have a, a journal. I write a journal every morning, and to me, I always think my brain is so full of all these different things that I always think of a you know the analogy of a cup of coffee and that the cup flows over unless you take something out and then you can put some more in. So I use a journal and I write in my journal every morning. And that to me is my, I call it my brain dump. So everything, it doesn't matter what I'm thinking or I just absolutely write everything I can in that journal until I can't think of any more to write. And then that is the start of my day. Because then I feel like I've got an empty mind. I'm ready to go and start learning or doing whatever I want to do. So the journal is really key. Um, like I said, that's my brain dump in the morning. If I am, um, sometimes I get frustrated because things have not gone the way I expect them to go. Or... Um, like we talk about being patient, sometimes something should have happened now and it hasn't happened. It's my journal. Um, I go and write in my journal. It, if you have a look at the dates in my journal, it's quite interesting because there's the daily dump in there. But then, you know, if, I'm, if things are going really good for me, not much goes into the diary. If I'm having a bad run, then, yeah, I've got to work it out and get it down in writing and see it that way. But, you know, I 
Writing has always been something I've loved. My dad installed a love of books into me when I was really young. Um, and I have always, if I want to learn anything, I always go to a book first. Even today with videos and everything, it's always a book I go to first. What was your first book, do you remember? Oh, I was very much into the Famous Five and the Secret Seven and all the Enid Blyton ones, um, dictionary, because my dad always said to me, go and look the word up. Um, if I always said to him, what's this word? It was, go and look it up. <laughs> um, yeah, was... lots, lots of reading. And it was only when I got into, um, I got into biographies when I was a teenager, mainly because I had these dreams and my mum said, you're going to need to marry a millionaire. And I said, why? <laughs> you know, why can't I be one? And then I thought, well, I better find out how you make money. And at that time, all you had was people who were singers or actors doing their biographies. And I can't for the life of me sing. I can't hit a note at all. And I don't consider myself to be acting quality. So I had to try and find another way. And then I found in the 90s that we started to get a lot more self-development books and people start getting into the book market. So that was really a massive opening for me. That's amazing. The the books, you know, being your go-to source, it's almost your, your, you know, books were your mentor in some ways, as you, as you say, and, yeah, you know, and, and using that as your reference material. It is. It's, um, like I said, the book is the first point of call for me hmm. and I will read lots of books. Um, I have trained with a lot of people, but only after I've read their books and if the books resonate with me, then I, investigate that person a little bit more if i found the books were difficult to read and they didn't sink in the information didn't sink in the way i expected it to um then that wasn't a person that i was going to go to for coaching i like very simple basic and then that gives me the confidence that somebody can teach me at the level that i want to be taught at yeah, it's, I mean, it's great, isn't it? To, you know, you resonate with certain styles of teaching. And has that changed over time that, you know, you resonate with different people at different times or do you have sort of regular go-tos? Um, I have, no, I would say I've changed because I did have regular go-tos. Um, and then it's almost like you get to the level they're at and they're still teaching the same stuff and you want to go up another level. So you have to go and find the next person to be able to move you up that level. So I do have people that when I was starting learning a topic, I would just take every book that they wrote. But now I look for other mentors because I feel I've gone beyond what they are prepared to teach and what the, the level. They have probably a lot more information, but they don't teach at that level. No, as you say, it's it's amazing that you know the people teach at a certain level, and it's not to say that that's their limitation, but that's the level that they sort of appeal to or resonate with and and can perform best. So, and sometimes you do you you out 
you outgrow sort of teaching styles or positions or whatever, and that's okay too. You know, it's, yeah. it's... And I remember in my banking days, um, the one of the CEOs in the bank, he used to say to me, um, new products would be launched by the bank, and he'd, he'd come down to me and he'd say, Karen, have a look at this, see what you think of this. And um, I'd look at it and I'd say, I don't understand this. And he said, no, neither did I. Uh, that's going in the bin. And he always said, you've got to keep it simple because if people don't understand it, then they're not going to use it. They won't um, adapt to it, all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it, it that philosophy has really stuck with me. And I think that is something that people forget in books. They it frustrates me because I think that a lot of coaches out there um, make things sound really complicated because they want to sell an expensive program and it's not complicated. It can be made very, very simple. And the more simple you keep it, I think the more of an audience you're actually able to sell to. Yeah, it's sort of, well, especially in maybe in the current market, it's it's sort of people see themselves as being a differentiator and, you know, sort of selling it in a different way to either apply a layer of secrecy or sort of extra intelligence to it when actually it was just a, you know, it's just dressed up maybe as something slightly different. It's the same story, but just different. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Take us back a bit to, to Mini Karen then. What were we looking at as what was Mini Karen like? What age, Mini Karen? I'm in my sixties now. That's a long, long time ago. <laughs> you know, in my fifties I was Mini Karen as well. <laughs> back in the Indian Blighton days, but look at that, the famous five days. Um so Karen then um my mum spent a lot of time in hospital. Uh, she had rheumatic fever when she was eight years old. And she was one of the guinea pigs for uh, a lot of the heart treatments that were pioneered in the um, 60s in the UK. And as a result of that, she would go into hospital and she would be there you know, 11 months, 12 months, because they'd say, because the they didn't, you know, medicine today is totally different to what medicine was back then. And they'd be experimenting. They'd want to make sure everything was perfect. So Minnie Karen was um, running a home, looking after a brother and sister and basically trying to do school. I was playing tennis. I had endless paper rounds trying to bring money in. Um, uh, yeah, I was very busy, very active, and I think the in that era, I'll call it because of my age, it was the era. You just got on and did things, and just got stuck into what you needed to get stuck into to get through the day and get on and do what you wanted to do. Was money short at that time? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, my dad, my dad was a professional soccer player. They did not get paid money like they do now. And he had to supplement that with having another job. Uh, to start with, when we lived in London, um, he had a milk round 
but then he moved on to the railways. So he was away a lot of the time as a rail guard and on the trains. And um, wages were not fantastic. And my mum wasn't working because she spent most of the time in hospital. There wasn't the benefit system that you have today. So, yeah, if you wanted money, you had to go and get it and make it. Well, what did your mum do before, before the illness? Oh, my mum was eight years old, so she had it all her life. Well, okay. So um, it, it was nigh on impossible for my mum to work. She did work a little bit. I think she was um, a bus conductress at one stage. She was a waitress in a restaurant. Um, she couldn't have a career path. She couldn't um, build anything like that because what she had to look at was two short-term jobs because she knew she'd be in and out of hospital. That's quite a that's quite an initiation for you, really. I suppose, but you know, really earning the money, looking after your brother, or your sister. You know, there's a lot of responsibility. It seems was falling onto you. Yeah, well, I was the eldest, so yes, but I also wanted that responsibility, I suspect, at the time. I can't remember what my mindset was then, um, because the first time my mum went into hospital, we were put into foster care, and while I had fantastic foster parents, I mean, they, they were absolutely amazing, the kids they had always referred to me as my as um if I was their sister when we were at school they always would introduce me as their sister so you know they were absolutely incredible but to me it was family and I wanted to keep the family together so I didn't want to go back into foster care so um this, I was about 10 and I just made the decision that was it of the foster family we didn't have that system of foster care that you have now um it was usually people from the church that we went to who volunteered to um take us in and look after us you know so um when i was 10 i just made the decision that's it i've got a brother a sister i'm gonna look after them and i can do this was there much of a, an age spread between your brother and your sister and yourself? Uh, my brother was three years younger and my sister was um, four years younger than my brother. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's a reasonable gap, especially at that age. That's that's quite, that's a lot. You know, at 10, if your brother is, what, three, if I've done the math right? My brother was four and my sister was, um, no, my brother was seven and my sister would have been four. Right, okay, three, three. So um, one of the neighbours was really good and she used to have my sister while my brother and I were at school. Um, I just used to cook, get up and cook breakfast in the morning um, and drop my sister in. So um, Mrs. Parry, her name was, she was a neighbour, still alive today. She's um, in a care home in Wales um celebrated her 89th birthday i think it was just a few weeks ago so still in contact with her so she, you know she's a really lovely lady so yeah she was a neighbor she would look after christina she'd look after the dog as well because uh, 
letting the dog out during the day while we were at school. And uh, I did breakfast, got us ready for school, came home, cooked dinner and um, took the dog for a walk, fed the dog. <laughs> and yeah, that was the day. And then I did um, have an aunt that would come in and she used to do the cleaning around the house once a week to make sure yeah, I'd do a bit of tidying up and a bit of washing and stuff during the day, but she would um, come in and make sure the house was totally clean during the week. Hey, looking back on that, I mean, how do you feel about that time now? No feeling. It, it was part of what happened. That's what you did. You just got up, you did it, you looked after it. And it was a good learning curve. It, um, yeah, I've always been able to stand on my own two feet and support myself and um, good grounding, I suppose, from that point of view. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, it, is that a lot to learn at that age? Is it too much? Is it, you know, is it a good thing? What do you think? I, I, I think sometimes there's pressures put on young kids, and I do see uh, a lot in the news these days about kids especially when um, there are more support systems there now, but mm. there weren't those support systems in those days. So basically family looked after family and that was it. You know, it's a, when you look at things today, it is a totally different generation. You know, and like I was born in 59. Um, I still have the ration cards that my parents had from the Second World War. And they had to have a ration card for me. So Britain was very much still coming out from the effects of the war. And people looked after themselves. You know, we had a garden. We grew our own veg in the garden. We <laughs> you needed to be independent. You had to stand on your own two feet. And I think the generation, I, I, I'm in that generation that came out from... I, I wasn't in the Second World War, obviously, because I was born to 59. But I think in Britain, you still had that effect that was um, quite a long-term effect on the um, families. So families learned to stand on their own two feet and they had to look after one another. That's quite something, that, that independent stripe, you know, and that... You know, as you say, whether it's rationing, whether it's, you know, you, you have to have a, a can-do attitude. Yeah. Because otherwise it just doesn't happen, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think it was pretty fortunate because, like, my mum was very much, um, you're born in the era where women are expected to get married, have kids, look after the house, have the slippers ready for that when the husband came home. And she said, don't do it, just go and do whatever you want and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. So I had that really good um, indoctrination, I suppose, from my parents that, you know, you want to do it, you go and do it. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. What was what was Karen's plans at the time? What, what did you want to do when you grew up? Had you any concept? Uh, I was going to live in this big house. Um, I knew, um, I, I remember describing to my mum all the colour scheme and everything I was going to have. And she said to me, 
um, I don't think people are going to see you in there because it's all going to be such dark colours. And I said, well, I think I'm going to have to wear shocking pink so that I can stand out. <laughs> but no, it was, um, I had, it, in my mind, um, I had always loved Formula One motor racing. And I was about five years old when, uh, five, six years old, the first time I saw Formula One, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And there was this glitz and glamour around it. It's not there today. It, it was a totally different image. And that has stayed with me. And that, I suppose, is something that... I love that, and I've always wanted to have that glitz and glamour lifestyle. I mean, is there a metaphor there that you were looking to be seen or looking to, to have, you know, the sort of polar opposite? Yeah, it a... could be because, I mean, we were very poor and this was totally opposite. So, yeah, yeah. I suppose that was a dream. Um, and like any kid, I had crushes on people, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to have money to get there if they're the type of people I'm going to want to meet. So, you know, it could be a time. So it is looking for that millionaire because acting and singing weren't weren't the top of the tree. So getting the millionaire or becoming a millionaire was the only thing left on the cards. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Talk to me about school. Were you running in or running out? What was your direction to travel? Um, I actually liked school because I love the education and I'm someone who likes to absorb information, but I was no good at doing school exams. Uh, and I just bombed out at exams. I think, yeah. it, was the I think it was the pressure right. that was put on you with exams. Um, I, I absorbed knowledge. I... Um, people have told me that they, they're stunned at how much I'm actually able to absorb and the information I have and retain and all that. Um, I always thought of my dad as a walking encyclopedia, and I think I have that sort of mindset that he had. Um, so, yeah, I could learn and absorb things at school. I just was not someone who, who did very well in exams. So school for me, exam-wise, um, yeah, I, I bombed out. Um, I say I bombed out. I stayed on an extra year. I got five um, O-levels they were in those days. QCSEs now, I think they're called, but they were O-levels in those days. I got five. And then I did... Um, I think it's called AS now, which is between A level, uh, your O level and your A level. And I did that. Um, and I did that in um, three subjects. What were the subjects out of interest? Statistics. Nice. <laughs> history. And English. English? Why English? English language. I just love writing. Well, that would make sense. So statistics, obviously, is very logical, very financially based, because, I mean, your language is incredibly kinesthetic. You're only very doing, very practical. Um, so, yeah, history, obviously, and you declared at the start how much you love history in the background and how it repeats itself, etc. And then the language, yeah, the book. So kind of makes sense. That was a good choice of subject. 
Yeah, so it's a teacher going forward. What, uh, you know, go, going through that stage, I mean, was school, were you clear on what you wanted to do once you came out? Obviously, the, the sort of, you know, the, the millionaire lifestyle was maybe a bit elusive, but... No, a- I had absolutely no... I, well, I, when I was at school, I liked languages, and I did French. Um, and I wanted to be a ship. And the school said to me, no, you can't do that. So then that was something that had come, you know, that was a, a background that was there. They said, no, you couldn't do that. I did play tennis and I had ideas of going pro and I did eventually go pro as a tennis player. Um, that was very short-lived. Um, I turned pro in the March and in the April I was in for surgery, which basically put end to my tennis career. Um but I had no idea what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. I I hadn't been able to find a path that suited me. And then um, at that time when I was leaving school, um, one in eight people was unemployed in the UK. And I saw a job with the National Statistics Office and I applied for that. Um, civil service. In those days, if you were a civil servant, you had a job for life. So um, that suited me. I did stats, so I was working with numbers. So um, that suited me. So I went for the interview, and a week later, I was told to report to Inland Revenue. So I never got to the stats. I went into um, taxes instead. Kind of one and the same, is it? Statistics and taxes? <laughs> no. <laughs> Why the difference, do you know? Is it something? Um, what I did in taxes was, um, I, I think, I have this thing where I always believe that fate looks after you if you give it a chance to do so. And although I that is, um, yeah, your, your number crunching, but it's only... I can't really think of the way to describe what I feel statistics is. If I look at what I did in in Inland Revenue, I was in the self-employed section. I was learning to read balance sheets, profit and loss statements. I was looking at how businesses were run. So I think fate had this way of moving me directly where I needed to be for what my path was going to be. It's an amazing thing because you know that allows you to quickly analyze and probably get a feel for where the money's at or successes or what's yeah. what's really going on before you actually delve into the having a good nose for numbers probably I would imagine would be quite useful yeah i I really enjoyed it i I loved um inland revenue it was um I know it's a funny thing to say, and most people don't like inland revenue um I remember going to a disco one night with discos back in my <laughs> my days and I remember going to a disco and this guy said to me where do you work we were we were dancing and he said to me where do you work and I said oh civil service because you, you never said in one revenue because people didn't like people who worked in the revenue I work in the civil service okay 
So what part of the civil service? Well, I work in the civil service. What department? And I was there and I was going, Inland Revenue. And he just went, you people, can't I ever get away from you? And walked off the floor and left. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But no, I um, really enjoyed Inland Revenue. I think that... Um, the, the grounding I got, the understanding of um, business, of taxes. Um, yeah, that, that was just incredible. I had no desire to have my own business at that stage. I just really enjoyed what I was doing. I mean, did you did you enjoy the stability of it? I mean, you talked about, you know, history is obviously it's foregone. It's, you know, logistics and, and, and statistics are very, it is just that. It's, it's either logical or it's not. You know, so you, you've taken a lot of the variability of life out. So suddenly it's, you know, is that something that appealed to you, that, that stability, that very binary? Stability was important because, um, like I said, one in eight people was unemployed at the time. Hmm. Um, I'd come up where we'd been on a three-day working week. We'd had electricity shutdowns through the Heath administration, Um I remember in Wales that Wales supplied water to England under contract and quite often the Welsh people had no water themselves because they had to supply so much to England. And, you know, to me, um, I, I actually asked to leave school early to go into that job. And the school were good. They said, yes, you can go. Uh, and I... It was. It was stability. I had a job for life. And I I was looked after, basically. As far as I was concerned, that was it. I didn't need to worry about things. I was going to have money coming in. I was going to be able to have a job there for life. And, um, yeah, it was. It was. That was key at the time. Were you still looking after your brother and sister at that point? Uh, no, my parents had actually divorced. My mum had remarried. My brother and sister were with my mum. And I lived with my dad. Right, so at least you were able to sort of get on with your life and look after you a bit more? Hmm. Hmm. Well, what's out of interest? Who, do you take after your mum or your dad? More so any? Uh, both, I think. I, I. The best of both. I think so, because like I said, my dad, I got the education, the inquisitiveness with books, um, the use of books and everything from my dad. Um, My mum was, you know, don't let anybody tell you you can't do anything. I don't. That's a beautiful way of looking at life, isn't it, really, that, you know, you have that belief of, you know, if you want to do it, go get it, go do it, you know, and also you need the money or whatever. So you, you just a very matter of fact, very down the line. And my dad had this dictionary, um, talking on my bookshelf <laughs> and it's a really old dictionary and the word can't isn't in there. It is in modern ones, but it wasn't in this dictionary. And if ever I said, I can't do something, he'd say to me, go and get this dictionary, look it up. And when I say the words not in there, he said, no, because no such word as can't. There's only that you don't want to do it or you don't know how to do it. 
If you don't want to do it, tough luck, get off your backside, go and do it now. If you don't know how to do it, then you ask and we find a way so that you learn and you know how to do it. It's a great summary, isn't it? Really, that sort of, you know, don't want to or don't, you know, don't know how to. It is a lovely way of looking at it as a decision tree of life. Mm. Yeah. So Inland Revenue, you, you spent your time there. What happened then? Met my husband. It's always a man. I know. <laughs> Um, yeah, met my husband, moved to New Zealand, went into banking. Was he the millionaire that you'd always been dreaming of? No, <laughs> but he had more money than I did, so I was quite happy. <laughs> Good start. <laughs> is he is he English based or is he from further afield? Is your is your I, husband is your husband English based or is he further afield? No, um, he was on a working holiday from New Zealand. He's a New Zealander. Hmm. Um, he was on a working holiday. Um, I actually met him at his going away party. Um, he came back a couple of months later and we were engaged six weeks later, six or seven weeks later, we were engaged and six months later married. And we're now uh, 40 years this year, the 40th wedding anniversary this year. That's fabulous. You know, what a... It must be quite something as well. I mean, did did you write when he was away? And no, you know, when you... no, it's quite funny because um, I was in the tax office and there were these ladies and they always used to be teasing me about who are you going out with and all busy working. I was busy doing my thing. I didn't date very much. Very rare, I dated, and um, I, Ron and I didn't even talk when I met him. We just made eyes at one another across the table all night and I was telling the ladies this and I went god just my luck I see someone that I like <laughs> and you know he's off and uh, he came back and his friend um, worked with my stepdad and my mum rang me up one day and she said um, oh, I've got this um, I've got this party you know, the, like he used to have like Tupperware parties and things like that. I can't remember which one it was now. And she was doing this party and she said to me, um, do you want to come? And I was not really. I'm not into that sort of thing. And she said, oh, well, I've had this guy here asking about you. And I said, oh, so who was that? And she said, oh, that's Ron. I said, oh, she said, he'll be here at um, eight o'clock. I said, yes, yeah, so will I. <laughs> So um, I was there about seven. Ron had turned up earlier. Um, we were there talking. Ron and I weren't talking. We were sort of involved in the conversation, but we weren't directly talking to one another. And I kept thinking, I wish he'd hurry up and go home so I could get up and go at the same time. And he was thinking the same thing. And um, eventually I said, I've got to go because I've got to get up for work in the morning. And Ron jumped up. Yeah, I have to as well. And so we made a date for the following week. That's beautiful. Just, uh, that was it. Just meant to be. Mm. What was it about him? The accent. That's right. Tell him the accent. He's laughing in the background. He's listening to that. Laughing in the background at the moment. <laughs> uh, so after 40 years, fair play. No, yeah, I've got good. used to the accent now. It's not as good. <laughs> I used to like you, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. It's a great way of doing it. 
So that's, that then shipped you off to New Zealand then, sort of six months later? Um, no, we we've, um, got married in the July, but it was actually the January where we um, finally went to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And how is that transition away for you? Something you're looking forward to? I mean, the Good, other side yeah. of the world? Yeah. Um, where I lived in Wales, I always said I didn't want to live there. And um, yeah, we went to New Zealand. It was good. Um, like I said, different culture, different things to learn. Um, I went into banking. That was absolutely phenomenal. The training ground. I was with a young bank that was just starting. And they had been operating out of a caravan, which you could do in those days. You can't do it now. You don't have so much money to start a bank in there. But they'd been, they'd started in a caravan and they had gone into a building and the day they went went in in, um, New Zealand and it was my job to teach people how the ATM worked and to give them their card. And New Zealand was so advanced compared to anywhere else in the world. Um, The card we had accessed any of your bank accounts now you have a card per bank account whereas then we had one card you just put in each each account had a suffix and you just put in the suffix that you wanted and you could access that and we could actually pay money in on the same card as well so it was a debit card and a deposit card and that was back in january uh, that was in 82 yeah february 82 that's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, they were just, you talk about being ahead of yourself. That's like, and we, we don't even almost have some of these facilities now. It's, yeah. Well. And um, the bank was online banking. We did everything online. So you could do the deposit. You could go and pay your money into the ATM. And some people would do it just to prove it that it worked. They'd put their money into the ATM and then they'd go around to the cashier, they, we had passbooks, and they'd ask you to us book in the computer, and it printed up all the transactions, and there was their deposit. It was instant banking. And we had people coming from all around the world to have a look at the system we were running. Uh, if I'm doing my math right, you were 23, 24 at that time? Uh, yeah, got married at 21, so yeah, 22. Mm-hmm. Great, I mean, it's great, uh, it's great exposure to see yeah, all 22. that. Yeah, oh well. So, how long did you stay with the bank then? For I was with the bank for 12 years. Um, and I left because Ron had started his own business. Uh, Ron worked for a company that did um, fire protection. He'd worked with them from school. Um, He had decided to leave the company. He left the company on the Friday. And all the customers kept ringing him up saying, will you um, look after our business? We're only with the company because you're there. And um, he was going, no, I've left. No, I've left. Like I said, on the Tuesday, we were in business. And um, I did all the admin, but it got, um, I had a car crash and um, 
it just got too much. I, I couldn't cope with the pressure of working in the bank, um, doing the business, as well as trying to get me fixed, if you like, um, recovered from the accident. And I had to give up banking. I, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. It was too high pressure. It was this, so when was the car crash then? Um, I was 30 when I had the car crash. Wow. Well, bad? Yeah. Uh, it took me two years to learn to walk again after the accident. That's... Five years to get back on a tennis court, seven years to get back on the skis. That's, um, that's quite something. I mean, that's you know, really to sort of take you off your... Take you off your feet, literally? It did. Um, everything obviously ground to a halt instantly. Um, and the dynamics of what I was doing, everything had to change because the focus had to go then 100% on me. It was the only thing I could think of because if I didn't put that focus onto me, I would still be in the wheelchair. When you talk about that sort of you know, coming back to that persistence and that patience, you know, it's like that time even to learn to walk again, that's, you know, that's a very, uh, you know, it's something you just have to build up the muscle slowly and surely. And that, that takes a lot of. The biggest problem I had was convinced I wasn't going to walk and they weren't prepared to work with me to do anything. So this um, can't, you know, if I hadn't had that background of my parents, then I wouldn't have fought as hard as I did. I would have just accepted that's it, I'm in the wheelchair. But I wasn't prepared to accept it. I knew what I wanted to do, where I was going. And um, for me, you know, I got to the stage where I was seeing my doctor every week and my doctor said, I'm referring you to a psychiatrist because you have to accept you are in a wheelchair. And they are the ones that are going to help you accept you in the wheelchair. And I had my first appointment with a psychiatrist. I went in there. And he said, why have you agreed to come? And I said, because I want you to just go back and tell my doctor that if I get the support, then I can do this and I'll be out of here. And he said, well, come back next week. And of course, as soon as he said, come back next week, you think, is there something wrong? Up here? <laughs> you know, um, you know, is it a problem? Am I going to be here? And then when I went back, the next got a brother-in-law who's um, a surgeon. He's a sports surgeon. He said, would you be prepared to have a chat with him? And I said, yeah, I will. And he said, I thought you would. He's in the room next door. Go and see him. And I was in the, the day after that um, for surgery. And that really started my journey to getting me back to walking again. Isn't it funny? I mean, you had to sort of almost go against the system and, you know, decide your own fate. And, you know, and thankfully, as you say, that was sort of programmed into you. And I had to pay for everything because um, the doctor wouldn't sign anything off. Um, I In New Zealand, they have a thing called um, ACC, which is, um, I can't remember what it stands for now. But there's no such thing. You can't sue anybody if you have an accident. You get paid out of this pool of money and everybody pays into this pool of money. So if you work 
part of your tax goes to ACC. If you have um, car insurance, part of that goes to ACC. Employers contribute to it. And basically, ACC paid me out, uh, paid me a lump sum of money. And that lump sum of money um, was them saying, we're not responsible for you anymore. If you want anything, then you've got to go and pay for it yourself. So despite all, you know, everything that's been done to you, you more or less, as you say, here's the chunk of money, you know, not even just to recover or to compensate for loss. It's, this is just to get you back and yeah. to, to wash your hands. Well, yeah. that's it's quite a... I like it? the scheme. I think the scheme is good because it works very quickly to get, if you're employed, it works very quickly to get you to treatment, get you into uh, back into work. Um, and like I said, there's none of the suing people and ending up in court or anything like that. So I do like the scheme. I think it's a very fair scheme in that. But they have limitations and the rules have just been changed when I had the accident. And the rule then was we pay you out because there's no way that you're going to recover from this. Yeah, it's perception. Oh, so there's so many things there, it really is. So you're quite some time then, and even, I mean, seven years to get back really skiing is, I mean, that's... You can't call it skiing. I'm on skis. I glide. I set up a turn. It takes me ages to set up a turn because I struggle to wait and then wait because most of the work goes through the knees, and that, that's really difficult. Knees and hips for me, very difficult. And my husband's on this fifth run down the mountain, and I haven't even got halfway down my first run, so that... You know, you can't call it skiing, but I'm out there. I'm on the mm. snow. <laughs> mm. That was a great way to be. So take us on then really from there. So Ron's, you know, so Ron's fire protection business, that was sort of taking and, and this was really you through sort of recuperation and recovery as well, was it, all at yeah. the same time? Uh, no, because Ron had had an accident just starting, so we were both sick. <laughs> we had this standing joke, um, because we'd be in bed and um, he he went down with a virus, which meant that um, he couldn't move his arms or his legs. And he, he was out of action for about three or four weeks from that. And we would be pushing each other out of bed and we'd wake up in the morning and say, so how old do you feel today? And we we started off about 120 and we'd get younger each day as we were getting a little bit better. But that was the question. How old do you feel today? Um, and then obviously Ron got going and the business got going. And um, then I just looked after me and got me to what I needed to do so that I could um, get myself back to where I needed to be. Of interest. I mean, were you were you actively investing or saving in you know saving for yourself at that time? I mean, no. or was that just everything you needed was back to to helping? I you? had to learn how to make money because I I had to give up my job. Ron's business was new, so it it didn't have the income coming in to support us. Um, we had to pay for um, my treatments, so we we really had to find a way of making money. And it all came down to um, all those books that were coming out in the market. I started getting them, reading them, just trying to learn as much as I could. And that was my journey to getting into investing and um, getting where I am today. 
it's, it's sort of intriguing. It's almost like, again, circumstances beyond your control, but you are forced to come up with a solution. You're forced to fight for you. You're forced to, well, I say forced. I mean, is that what it felt like? It's sort of, here's the, here's the cards and it's up to me how I deal with it. I've never felt that it was forced on me. Hmm. Um, it is. But like I said, I always believe fate. Um, I call it fate. People call it law of attraction, whatever they want to call it. Um, I have always called it fate and I've always believed that when one door closes, another door opens, you've got to find that door and that there's always a reason for that change. And if you focus on where the opportunity is going to be rather than focus on what has been shut off behind you, then I think you're able to move forward and just listen to what's around you, look at what's around you, and you see the opportunities. Just, I'm curious, do you, would you be spiritual, religious? Where do you sit? Are you fact-based, logically brained? Um, I hedge my bets. I sit right, a small contribution just in case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I... I believe there is something higher. What that higher is, I don't know. Um, am I someone who goes to church and prays? And no, I'm not. Um, but I do believe there is something. I am definitely fascinated with the Bible, the history, and the archaeology that comes out and proves stories and things like that, which gets me back into my history that I like um so I, I am really fascinated with that um but no I don't practice but I certainly believe there is something what that something is I don't know yeah it's I mean it's just you use the word fate and you know it's almost like a form of karma it's like there's something else you know it's a bit of a yeah. tail on the donkey thing I don't quite know where or what but there's something Something. Something, yeah. Yeah. And I I believe that um, it has a way of looking after me. There's something that looks after me. So as long as I don't try fighting that too hard, you know, um, if I listen to it, that, and that's why I said, if a door closes, do I focus on that door closing or do I look ahead and see what the opportunities are? Yeah, it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, to... Um... Yeah, to sort of almost when something happens to you is rather than sort of reduce the, the blame or the, the backward look, you know, and saying, well, what has happened has happened and where now? Mm. And a bit of a change of mindset. So take us through then. So, I mean, really you were, the two of you were sort of in various stages of recovery. <laughs> yeah, at least for Ron, it was only a few weeks yeah. and he was back on his feet again um for me yeah it was um it was a long haul it took me two years to get to the stage where I was able to but it actually took me a year to get to the stage of being able to walk to stand and walk but I couldn't cope with steps or um slopes or anything like that um so to get me to the stage being able to climb up and down steps or to walk on slopes that took another year well yeah it's that, that sort of recovery is mentally challenging, I'd imagine, in itself, is to, you know, to, to get back to doing what you wanted to do or to be mobile. 
Yeah, well, I, the surgeon said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to get back on the tennis court and I want to ski again. And he just looked at me and went, oh, my God, the two worst things you can do. <laughs> That's usually what brings people to him, I'm sure, you know, whereas you're, uh, yeah, case of... Uh, you... he, just, he just said to me, as long as you are sure that's exactly what you want to do, then I'll do the best to get you there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was what I needed. I needed someone that was prepared to work with me because up until that stage, everyone had put a barrier up and said, no, you're in a wheelchair, accept it. Well, that's nice. I mean, you, you decide your own fate and do what you need to do is get on with it. So mm. so what happened? So you, you must have been sort of a couple of years on then. You must have been ready to move to Australia, if I've done the math right. Um, yeah, 2000, year 2000. Um, we we'd actually met Robert Kiyosaki. And I'd started reading his books and um, found another piece in the jigsaw uh, where I was learning to invest and make money and stuff. And we'd been um, up to Auckland to see him. And we we drove home. It was a five and a half hour drive. And as we were driving home, Ron and I were talking about what was in there, what we liked that was in there, what we thought was the opportunities that were there. And we decided that we couldn't do it in New Zealand. So we felt that Australia offered us the better opportunities. So we moved to um, Australia. But we were only in Australia for a a very short while when my mum died and that brought us back to the UK. Gosh, quite a transition for you then. So, you know, uh, Australia, obviously, I mean, you're, you know, Ron had obviously closed up the business at that point or moved on from the business. and We actually put the business up for sale Mm. and we had a buyer for the business um, all the due diligence was done, the business um, the price had been agreed, and one hour before the contract was due to go um, non-conditional, um, you know, what do they call it here? You have an exchange of contract. Yeah. Um, one hour before, um, the other party called out. And what they did was uh, they had all the details of our staff, everything we paid they offered them all massive pay rise we had a staff of 35 and at the end of it we had a staff of five I think it was and uh, then they went to all our customers and said we've got all Ron and Karen staff so we can continue looking after you and they offered them a massive discount the customers refused to look counted on was that customers were only there for what you know they had moved from there our business had started because those customers wanted to work with Ron Uh, it didn't matter who the staff were that we had they wanted to be with Ron because Ron is very clever in the way that he looks at things he's very logical in the way he looks at things and so he could solve a lot of problems for those clients and so they stayed with him we lost um, our staff who went after the money and we were left with a client base that we could not look after. So we ended up having to close the business down and walk away. That's kind of the, that's the worst of many is really, you know, you sort of, 
you get a real insight to human nature and clients and a lot of things is tough lessons there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was so nice that the clients had said, you know, we lost, we lost one client, only one client moved. Everybody else stayed with us. And that was just incredible because that just showed how much high esteem um, Ron's held in, you know, by those clients. But it meant that we, we tried, but it was just impossible. You know, we had a staff of 35. There's no way you can look after your client base when you're just suddenly down to five staff. And it was a specialist industry. We had to try and find people. We had to train them. Um, we always said it took us 18 months to train somebody to get them to the stage where they could go out on their own and work and do the things that we wanted them to do. Um, we just we couldn't do it. What did you learn from that out of interest? Well, I learned from it. I certainly, well, I what I felt was revenge. <laughs> and that was something I hadn't had before. I, and I, re, well, I was so angry at this company that my mindset was totally on revenge. Mm. And I did get revenge. And my revenge was that the company was listed on the share market and I went and bought shares in it and became a shareholder in that company. And I got my um, dividends and money out of the company that way. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? If you don't like it, go and buy it. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I did that when I was in the UK because um, and that, that wasn't revenge. Um, that was um, I needed... To, I was working for a company because I needed to have a certain amount of income coming in to be able to get mortgages to do my rental property business. And when I was made redundant, and the third time I went and bought the company, so I actually had a job to do to get my mortgages and build my property portfolio. It's so, I love that. It's, yeah. Whenever, if you you get frustrated with the company, buy the company. I love that. I mean, that's, that's all the way along. It's very strategic thinking is, you know, things are happening. You know, they're not necessarily happening to you. They're happening around you. And yet you choose to actually find a path that works for you or you choose to be strategic in that at that point. I mean, it's, mm. it's very, very forward thinking, very strategic. I don't know what to say about it. It's the way mm. my mind works. Mm. Is, that, is that survival? Is it... I don't know. People have always said that, um, I don't know whether it's the right word, they've always said I'm pragmatic, um, that I just adapt to whatever's around, and um, I I just deal with whatever comes up. And I guess, you know, I, and I, I think that's probably one of the things I learned as a kid when we started talking about a kid. You know, what did I learn from that? Then I probably learned to adapt to the situation and just deal with what was... Um, happening and make the best of it and find a way to make the best of it what's what's been your attitude to risk and has it changed through time um risk is uh, one of those things that i think something people see something as risk if they don't have the knowledge for it and so i tend not to go into something until I've done it, got the education and I understand it. And, um, you know, for example, cryptocurrency, 
uh, straight over my head. I'm not a tech person. Straight over my head. Um, and then I watch the way money flows because I look at what goes out of favour as an investment. I'm a contrarian investor. I look at what goes out of favour. And so I'm always watching where money's flowing out of. And I noticed that money flows a lot into cryptocurrency. And I decided that I needed to learn cryptocurrency. I'd always stayed away from it. It wasn't an asset to me. It was high risk. But the more I'm learning about it and the more I've gone into it, especially in the last three or four months, um, you know, it's very volatile. But I just bring in the tools that I know, I understand from investing. I read charts. I apply the same tools to the charts. I actually accept some of the movements because I can see the trends. I use different tools on the chart. And so um, it's lost its risk to me because I've understood it. I can apply what I, the knowledge I know and what I understand to it. So I don't see um, risk in that now because I understand it more. So if you say what's risk to me is going into something I don't know and don't understand. So because I like to do my research and learn about it as much as possible, I don't see um, the level of risk that other people see because I've done my homework and I understand that investment. In you said it was two thousand odd when uh, Robert Kazaki, you know, that you came across that. I mean, what were the principles there that was sort of new to you as such, or, or was there a new principle, or was it just a different way of looking at it? It was more the property side of things, right? Because to me um, and to Ron, we had always wanted to do more property. We had a couple of properties at the time. Um, we wanted to do more with property, but to us, it meant that we had to sit back we had to understand a lot more we had to save our money we had to do other things before we could go more into property and Robert Kiyosaki's system um what he was writing about just set off lots of things and made us think ah we can do this we can do that and at the time as well the mortgage market was changing because we had these I don't know if you remember, if you're old enough to remember, but these um, fortnightly payment mortgages came in. They And you suddenly found that you could look at things differently. You could save a lot more money. You could do, you could leverage more than you used to be able to because you could um, cut those, you know, your payment times down and things like that. And we saw by reading the book, we saw things that we could do. And I've read some other books as well. Some books are over my head at the moment. There's um, here, these are um, making money, making more money and living well in retirement. The information in those is absolutely incredible. And then once I got these Robert Kiyosaki ones that are over my head, um, they sort of interlinked a little bit, showed us a way we could move forward. New Zealand was 97% home ownership, and we didn't see that we could have a rental property business um, to the extent that we thought we could build in New Zealand, which is why we went to Australia. So already there, I mean, you were sort of ticking, this was a couple of the things in terms of, you know, property was your, your main investment vehicle at that time? Business. Uh we had a business that was the, the main one. Yeah, so there's cash, but you know, you, you're sort of. Well, I mean, did you see the property as investing, or was that just accumulation more? 
Um, the property we had was, um, obviously, we had our home mm-hmm. that we lived in, but we also had a, a property that was about ski field. And that had been for us to stay there during the ski season. But what had happened was um, the demand for rental, that property was always rented out. So we were back to getting up near the hours of the morning and driving up to the ski field to um, ski. So um, it it had been there for a purpose for us and we never got to use it as that. It, It actually became a rental property because so many people wanted holiday lets. The little village we had, there was a population of something like about four or 5,000 people lived there. Um, ski season, 17,000 people went into the area. Uh, we were stupid if we didn't rent that property out to make the income off it, so we did. Mm. That makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't you? You know, so it's almost slightly accidental landlord is kind of going, that would be a nice place to have. And then actually we've got an asset and we can sweat the asset and on you go. Yeah. Mm. No, so because we, we always consider business as investing because um, that to us is one of the biggest assets that you can build and create and mm. not only does it give you the cash to do other investing but it's an asset that you can sell yeah it's very tangible too mm. you know if that's i know that's Personally, the way I, I like to be able to drive up to my asset, <laughs> you know, <laughs> might cause me problems, but it's different to a stock and a share. You can't, it's very hard to drive up to it and, you know, give it a touch and feel it and kind of go, but that's, yeah, it's just a, sort of a mindset more than anything else, really, isn't it? It is. Um, and that was something I had to, because to me, um, it was something I couldn't hold, I couldn't touch it, it wasn't there. Um, and that took a massive mind shift to move into cryptocurrency. Yeah, it's that, yeah, it's a change in, yeah, change in mindset, changing so much. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, so 2001, 2002, you were back in the UK then? Your, your mother had passed, unfortunately. 2000, we came back to the UK. Hmm. Yeah. And how was that? I mean, sort of dot-com boom, 2000 era, lots lots going on. It was, there was a lot, but um, when we came back, my mum had died. I lost my grandmother 12, uh, 12 days later, and I lost six members of my family in eight months. So all I did was hospitals and funerals. Um, we'd go out for walks and we'd walk over to the town centre and look around and we, we look at the property and we think, oh yeah, there's some opportunities there. God, this is so much cheaper than Australia and New Zealand, the property. And um, we started inquiring about what we could do and how we could get into property. But they, uh, the banks wouldn't lend to us because Britain's um, um, recession where they've been hit really hard was property, so they weren't lending. And um, because we come from overseas, they wanted us to be in the country a certain amount of time before we um, were able to qualify for a mortgage. So it was actually um, June 2001, we bought our first property. And then in September, the same year, we bought the second property. And then we just expanded from there. 
Yeah, and I mean, they were interesting times in the UK. We're seeing strong, strong UK house growth too as well, which is mm-hmm. nice, nice place to be at that time. Yeah. There's a lot going on. I mean, interesting time in your life, really. I suppose I'm trying to work out you were early 40s at that time. So if I've done the math right again. Yeah, so. I was 40. Yeah, we arrived in 2000 that I had my 40th birthday. Hmm. Yeah. Good time almost for a midlife crisis, if you like, you know, sort of a lot going on with family, property, moving country. Yeah, sort of a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of change for you, really. Yeah. But I was always used to change, you know, like I said, I'd been in a few different countries by that stage. It's, I suppose that's the side of me that comes out. It wasn't, I was dealing with the trauma of losing so many people in such a short space of time. Um, I didn't really have time to think and focus on anything else. And then I was established in the UK. Were you solely um, property investing at that time or had you other things going on as well? No, um, Ron and I had both got jobs. Um, We wanted to do the property. Like I said, we couldn't get mortgages. Um, The bank had said to us we needed to have jobs and have set income coming in. Um, Ron went and got a job as a security guard for Curry's and I went into a recycling company and I did an admin job for a recycling company. So between us, we had the income, we had the mortgage that we wanted and um, yeah, then we started getting into the property. Interesting times to, you know, because they were obviously times of self-cert and all sorts as well in the in the mortgage market, so it, uh, quite favourable. Well, we yeah, at the time we weren't on self cert because we both had jobs. So we um, at, at the time um, you, there was no such thing as buy to let mortgage, and so the banks uh, would lend us money, and we were told we could do up to five properties. So what we did was said, is that five properties between us or five properties each? And they said, you can have five properties each as long as you've got the, the wage for it. So that was how we started. Uh, we bought one for Ron, then we buy one for me, <laughs> we buy one for Ron and one for me. And then um, buy collect mortgages came out. And yeah, we just flew once they came out. I mean, it's very strategic too. I mean, to, as you say, to get the salary, to get this, to to choose the vehicle, you know, choose the market that works, you know. So almost, a, you know, a lot of things had to happen, but then ultimately you ended up in the right place to allow that strategy to come into play. Yeah, doing what we had to do to get where we wanted to be. Mm. Well, yeah, so there's, there's a lot there, you know. I don't know. I just think of it as I live my life and I deal with things as they crop up. You use the word strategy so many times. It makes it sound like that is all I've ever done. It's, yeah, it's so strange. But even, I mean, surviving can be a strategy in itself. I mean, subconsciously, it's, you know, here's a problem. You know, I just get on and do it, right? You know, it's, Yeah, it can be, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that, I mean, it's... It comes across like as a as a you know resilience. It's it's that that thing of you either sit down and cry or you, <laughs> you stand up and get on with it. 
yeah, and all I think I've been doing is living my life, <laughs> dealing with what comes along. And I'm sure you see that with investors too. I mean, they sort of, a lot of people I'm sure don't see themselves as anything special, but yet what they've done is be consistent. What they've done is, you know, put a lot of time under the belt is to be, you know, sort of follow a formula or whatever that's maybe not going to set the world on fire, but actually the power is in the consistency and the compounding. Yeah. And that is the key to me with investing. And that's what I try to teach. Um, if you take things slowly, you, you build that foundation. Um, I believe there's four categories for investing. You have business, you have property, you have digital, and you have cash. Right? And as long as you've got something in all four of those categories, you're always got an investment that's going up or an investment that's going down. Mm. And the contrarian in me is waiting for the investment to go down so I can go and buy more of it and make more money when it's going up. Right? So I am always working in those four areas. And that's why I try and teach clients. And it is patience and taking the opportunities when they come along. Hmm. Interesting you say that. I mean, the digital category now, does that all, that's digital, I'm assuming, is in terms of digital. I used to call it paper. Hmm. Right? Because you used to do shares and you used to be given a piece of paper. If you did shit, you used to do bonds and you get a receipt or you'd invest in things and you get a receipt for it. These days, everything is digital. So I've changed it from paper to digital investing. And mm. it's, um, yeah, you, you've got the bonds, the bond markets, you've got the share markets, you've got the cryptocurrency in there. Um, you've got um, all sorts of trading that actually goes in there with the, the Forex and the futures, you know, so there, there is... I've just classified it now as digital because to me, it, it all comes under that one bracket because it's all online. I mean, is it fair to say, really, I suppose you, you've been a focused investor, if you like, since 2000-odd? So, I mean, this is, a, this is 20 years of investing for you, is that? Yeah. Is that a, it's, yeah. I put my plan together in 1999. And I wrote out exactly what I wanted to do. And... it's still the same today it hasn't changed and it just said I was going to build my wealth through building business property Uh, it says paper investments there which that's the only thing that needs to change digital um, and cash investing and part of the business side is that I was I wanted at that stage I wanted to write books um, and I wanted to get more into the educational side and the business side and it's exactly the same today. I just keep doing the same thing over and over. I build businesses, I get the property, I do the digital investing, and I do the cash investing. It's not amazing insights that no matter what, I mean, recessions, pandemics, various booms and busts and all the rest, that actually that strategy has held you all the way through that and has compounded. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, there's an amazing and lesson the there. Is, you, you talk about, you know, people see the pandemic, they see the, like you say, the booms and busts. I'm contrarians. So every time there's bad news, it's a bonus to me because something goes down. And if that's an asset that I'm in, I don't, I'm not panicking to get rid of that asset 
a lot of people panic when they sell because that asset's going down. I see it as a sale, like, you know, people rush to do the January sales or the Boxing Day sales. To me, when there's bad news in the market, that's my rush to get in and get the um, investment at a much lower price. Mm. And then I'm there, I see it, I get to use it when we come out and the assets start growing up in value. So like, be curious when others are fearful and be fearful right. when others are curious. Yeah. Greedy is the word. If it's Warren Buffett, it's greedy. Mm. Greedy when others are fearful. Be fearful when others are greedy. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Greed sometimes is different connotations for people, isn't it? You know, it's, you know, um, is it smart? But, you know, cause... um, there is, with, uh, as an investor, I believe that everybody operates from two mindsets. You mm. operate from a mindset of greed operate from a mindset of fear whichever one you operate from you have to understand you so that you know the way you react in certain circumstances and that will actually then guide the way you invest okay so and there's nothing wrong with either it's just the way you operate Hmm. i would class myself as someone who goes from greed because i'm contrarian and I'm always trying to get more of the asset at the cheapest that I can. Mm. Mm. I'm not someone that would just go and buy, 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 because I can buy, buy, buy. Um, and that is another type of greed. But for me, the fear or the greed, the greed is the one that I operate from, but I'm contrarian. So I always go against what the market's doing because that's where I see the deals. I mean, where, where does that see you all today? I mean, all this, where you've, where you've built up and gone to, I mean, you know, where are you on your plan? You know, are you, what, what duration was the plan? And I got to get about the... <laughs> so you're, you're about to hit the exponential curve, right? So you're, I hope you're... so. I hope I'm not far off of that at the moment because, uh, yeah, I've got my end goal that I want and um, the plan's in place and I'm following the steps and I'm getting there. Hmm. I love that. That's just that. So I'm, I'm waiting for that, yeah, exponential curve to kick in. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you do you do forward goals long term? You know, the that whole, you know, do you plan right forward or or you know, do you? Do you sort I of... I am a big forward planner. Mm. Um, even on short term goals, I forward plan as well. So, um, any any time I set a goal, then the goal is broken down into um, what do I, what's the forward planning I need to do so that I can then take the action steps to get that goal achieved. But the other thing is I always believe there's a habit that needs to be changed because if you haven't achieved something, you set yourself a goal, there's usually a habit that's holding you back from achieving it. So um, I believe that you have to look at your habits and try and find what you think is holding you back from achieving that. So to me, anytime I put a goal together, it's it's got the action steps, but there's two sides to it. There's forward planning to make sure that I achieve that goal. And then there's the me side of it, because what do I have to change to make sure that I'm going to get that goal? Yeah, it's amazing. It's, you know, habits, you know, and, and 
looking at yourself? I mean, do you are you, are you conscious of yourself? Of your own actions? Do you do you sort of review your view your own status, your own mindset? Um, not consciously. Um, I do look at things. That's a hard one to answer because yes, I do, but I'm not religious at doing things, if you like. Mm. Okay. My, we come back to my journal, my mind dump. And I suppose because I talk to myself through my journal, I write my journal as though I am talking to myself. And I would be saying, well, this has happened today. Why did this happen today when I'm doing, what do I need to do to stop that? So I do do that review, but I'm not someone that would sit down and draw a path of how, how I would do something, if that makes sense. My, I come right back to my journal. My journal's key to a lot of stuff. Well, it's great. I mean, even just to assess your, as you say, your own language, what's going on, you know, and, and flushing that out, whether it's through a journal, whether it's through whatever your form of communication is. So, um, no, it's just always interesting to understand where, how people sort of gauge how they feel about things, you know, because I'm curious, I mean, what, what's, what's something you're really good at and what's something you're really terrible at? I'm very good at looking at things and breaking them down into simple things, right? So when I look at investing, when I look at, um, when I'm reading books and things like that, I've got to be able to break it down to something that's in simple steps to understand. So when I set my goals, when I set everything, it's always broken down into simple things. What am I terrible at? Technology. It goes straight over my head. I do not understand it at all. I was talking, uh, doing a training group the other day, and I was saying to them about investing in shares. And I said, I do not invest in technology shares because I don't understand technology. Right? So I only invest in what I understand. And I said to them, you know, I've got a TV, I've got a DVD player, and I don't even know how to operate them. Right? My husband always puts a DVD in and sets it up. And someone says to me, well, that's really old school because you stream everything now. And I thought, well, that's, a, that's obviously straight over my head because, yeah, I am not a technology person. I'm laughing. It's like that Forrest Gump thing where you invest in it in a fruit company called Apple. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and they've done quite well. It's like, yeah, that, yeah. that fruit company. Oh, I love yeah. it. No, that's great. So what, what uh, without sort of giving away the crown jewels, I mean, what, what sort of, you know, vision boarding and, and the future, what, what sort of things do you see for yourself? What's on the bucket list or the love list? Okay, I actually don't have a bucket list. Um, and a few people have asked me about it and people say to me, you really need to have a bucket list. And I think, no, because if there's something I want to do, I put it into a goal and I go and do it. <laughs> so um, to me, the bucket list doesn't exist. It's just I go and do something and I think right now, what's the next thing I want to do? Okay. Um, I do have an ultimate goal that I'm aiming for, which you know, I <laughs> have this boat that I want. And um, yeah, that is... Um, I've got my steps towards getting that. 
Um, obviously this year, 40th wedding anniversary, that is key to celebrating um, that and building that. But I'm growing a company. I want to teach people. I want to show them that uh, you can invest. You can have the lifestyle you want. You can do exactly what you want as long as you've got a pathway to follow. I love it. There's so much out there. What's a bit of a guilty pleasure for you, Karen? A guilty pleasure? What would be a guilty pleasure? I'll give you the most common answer if you want. I can imagine what the most common answer would be. What would it be, chocolate or something? Chocolate and wine. (laughs) Ah, Well, I'm allergic to alcohol, so nothing alcoholic for me. And um, no, I don't eat chocolate. So um, what would be a guilty pleasure? I, I suppose I really can't think of anything that I would consider a guilty pleasure. But that's quite a hard one. Well, what, what does leisure and pleasure look for, you know, sort of time out? Do you do time out? Do you switch off? Yeah, every day. Um, especially since we're in Spain. That, that works really fantastic because we have siesta time here in Spain. So um, Spain shuts down at two o'clock and then it's we have um, lunch and we relax out on the balcony, weather permitting. 90%, 95% of the time we, we get to relax out on the balcony. So yeah, and then you come back into work round about five, which fits in. So I get that time out every day. Um, either on the balcony or we go and sit on the beach and um, go for walks and things. And about five, then everything kicks back in. And that works well because I do all my coaching in the evenings. So I can do my work I want to do in the mornings and my time out in the afternoons coaching in the evenings. It's a lovely way to have it, isn't it? That sort of, you know, split up time and you, know, you get to do it and the, the, the joy of, pandemic in some ways you know it's you know or change let's just say it's you get you time you get change time you get to you know speak to people internationally and uh, And I like the culture change it fits me you know you just asked me about guilty pleasure when I was in the UK if I was out in the morning and I went shopping or something in the morning I always had this thing that people think I should be in work instead of out shopping you know that would that would probably be like my guilty pleasure. Here, it's such a different lifestyle that it's balanced, and you just you know I fit in all the things I want to. Yeah, it's it's just different markets, isn't it? It's great. It's, it's a nice place to be. You know, it's uh, it's great. So tell us, I mean, if you were to describe your fire in the belly, then in one or two words, what would that be? I want people to understand that. No, that's probably the wrong way to say. I want to be able to teach people that you can actually get anything you want. You can do anything you want. You can you can be as wealthy as you want. Money shouldn't be scarce. Um, If you have financial education, then you should be able to live your dreams. You you know your dream lifestyle, whatever you want to do. It's not two words, but <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> Try shutting me up. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I'm going to take 
teaching education out of that or education and finance probably is <laughs> like uh, try and summarize it down a wee bit <laughs> tell us where where can people reach out to you karen where can they read more or find out more about you uh facebook's the best place um facebook groups uh karen newton international that's the best way final message you'd like to leave with people learn get as much education as you can and the world's your oyster education 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 yeah yeah and and probably in the right way too it's not just education for education's sake it's something that you love to do or passionate about put it into practice because there are people that can be um professional students uh, and never put into practice what they are learning I think I might upgrade your two words to learn and do. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it is true. But it's it's a credit to you. You've learned how to do it, and you actually do it, and and that's that's the key thing, really. It's it's getting on. It's it's you know it's key for any any investor. Or, you know. Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your your journey and and so much so many insights there. So thank you for that, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you, Pete. Been pleasure. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you.